This is for report 70 on product-led growth. Let's start by talking about why this topic matters. Customer acquisition costs are higher than ever as companies pay more to Facebook and Google. We're also seeing the effect of code being commoditized. So companies aren't merely competing on features. Feature parity is common. When we're looking at product-led growth, we often compare that to sales-led growth, where you're putting a salesperson between your product and your prospective customer. This is a limiting function where adoption is throttled by your ability to deploy salespeople. And if you anticipate more demand, if you anticipate more revenue and you have a sales model, you have to hire salespeople ahead of that demand. So you're always leading with expenses, almost as if you had a factory and the factory is doing well, you're producing widgets, but you have to deploy capital before you can bring in capital. Compared to a software business or a company built on a product-led model where the acquisition strategy is more scalable. And that's the solution to build a product that can sell itself, where users can try before they buy without talking to anyone. In the player section, we talk about companies like Canva, UserList, Slack, Tally, Notion, and many more. The first prediction is that SaaS companies will be able to focus on SMBs while serving enterprise customers. And in the past, companies like Shopify and Webflow would hire account executives and they would build up an enterprise arm with implementation services for these enterprise companies. But now they're working with agencies who provide those implementation services saying, hey, these are our trusted partners. If you want this customized solution, you can work with them. They can build on top of our platform. And that allows the Shopify's and Webflow's to remain focused on software instead of spreading themselves thin into unscalable services. Another prediction is that end users will gain more leverage within larger organizations. We can see this now with developers as an end user group where they have a lot of power in terms of the tools that they use and that they can bring into organizations. Slack entered organizations in a bottoms up fashion where you can imagine one team adopting it and then it's spreading throughout the organization. And we'll talk more about how Slack uses salespeople to complement this product led model. Another prediction is that we'll see product-led growth strategies used outside of the world of SaaS. If you look at the player section, you'll notice that anywhere from 80 to 90% of the examples that are provided are actually SaaS examples. But there's no reason that these strategies can't be applied to marketplaces, subscription media companies like Netflix. And when we think about subscription media, it tends to have lower LTVs, customer lifetime value than a SaaS company. And that necessitates the use of product-led growth strategies because you can't necessarily support uh, the overhead that comes with using a sales-led model and throwing salespeople on these accounts. We'll also see user expectations shift in terms of the experience that they expect from enterprise tools. One early example of this, if you're old enough to remember when iPhones first rolled out, you probably remember people in the C-suite requesting and pushing for the ability to use iPhones as opposed to Blackberries at work. And that effort eventually succeeded. And that's an example of, we have these expectations around user experience in our normal life, if you will, and those expectations are then bleeding over into our life in the enterprise or in these companies. We'll also see more companies use salespeople to complement this product-led model where we hinted at Slack earlier. The way that Slack does this is that they have salespeople, but these salespeople are going after product-qualified customers, if you will. 
they are selling deeper into organizations where customers are already using Slack. They can look at organization attributes such as size to sort of lead score to decide how do they prioritize the time and the effort of their salespeople. We'll also see companies use machine learning to cut down time to value. We'll expand on this idea of time to value more later, but you can think about it as if, if you signed up for Netflix and based on the preferences that you expressed in an onboarding survey, if your profile matches the profile of several of our other users, we can probably anticipate which TV shows, which movies you'd be interested in, and that's cutting down the time to value before you start realizing value from this product, in this case, Netflix. On to opportunities where the first opportunity is to discover intent, understand the job that your product is being hired to do. And this is often done through onboarding surveys. Some companies even customize user experiences based on the answers that are provided in this onboarding survey. You can imagine that if you had a graphic design tool and a new customer or a new user expressed that they are trying to create a poster, rather than dropping them into a blank slate experience, perhaps you can, after onboarding, drop them into the experience where, hey, here's a poster that's 80% done. Perhaps if you know they're designing for an organization and you've taken their company name, you can even put their company name on the poster, again, cutting down that time to value and helping them realize that value faster. Another thing that we can talk about is to go deeper into this idea of realized value because it's one thing for users or customers to receive value, and it's another thing for us to realize the value that we received. Some examples include the Brave browser where when you open up new tabs, they constantly remind you how much time they've saved you, whether it's hours or days. You could also look at a company like MellorLite where they remind you of how many emails that you sent or Stripe where they remind you of how much money you've made and they're using these personalized summary statistics to keep that top of mind and remind you of the job that you hired these tools to do and that they're succeeding at doing this job. You could also help users self-educate and depending on how this is done, it may have SEO benefits. The ideal solution is for your tool to be simple enough to not require explanation, but that's not always possible. And in these cases, when you document, you can frame the documentation in a way that actually acquires new users. One example is imagine that you run Shopify or at least their support or customer success department. You can frame your documentation in terms of how to set up cart abandonment recovery in Shopify or you could frame it as how to set up cart abandonment recovery, focusing more on the goal than the tool. And in this way, a user may not even know about Shopify and be pulled into the ecosystem. In that example, you may want to go higher up the funnel than this feature within the tool set. It may just be, how do I set up an online store? That may be a better example in that case, but the same principle applies of focusing more on the user's goal to acquire new users rather than the tool. We talked about this earlier, but you could also use uh, your salespeople to assist this product-led model. Again, going back to the fact that you already have the usage patterns, you have the organization attributes, and these are product-qualified customers or users because they already use your product. Even though we talk a lot and advocate for a product-led growth model, something that resembles a sales-led approach makes more sense sometimes, especially pre-product market fit, where you may be optimizing more 
around learning than earning and you're not necessarily concerned with a scalable distribution strategy, especially if users are not converting from freemium plans or free trials, it doesn't help much for you to guess or hide behind this freemium or product-led model. Perhaps you need to get in front of customers, even if it's on a Zoom call and have conversations. You get much more information and it's just a higher fidelity experience when you're trying to understand why aren't they converting. So you may not want to prioritize scalable distribution too early, especially pre-product market fit. You could also go back to the report that we did on growth tools, where some companies are adding ancillary products to pull prospective users or ideal users into their ecosystems. You could look at Shopify's business name generator, where perhaps they don't end up using Shopify, but perhaps they do. And this is expanding that top of funnel, expanding that net, and it is a product that weaves these prospective customers into their universe. You could also look at Active Campaign's cart abandonment calculator. And it's interesting because we just talked about Shopify. Perhaps that's something or a growth tool that Shopify could use as well, but there is some overlap between Active Campaign and Shopify in terms of their target customers. In one case, it's where you host your online store. In the other case, it's what do you use for your email marketing. It's interesting to see how these tools can help completely different companies targeting the same users. You could also look at applying this product-led growth model to non-SaaS businesses. Even though this model is very popular in the world of SaaS, there are examples of it being applied beyond SaaS. We can even look at marketplaces like Airbnb, where to go back to growth tools, they have a growth tool that targets prospective hosts in terms of helping them understand how much they could make as a host. And in that way, they're building up the supply side of their marketplace. And we talked about the importance of onboarding surveys and understanding what job your product is being hired to do, but it's also important to add exit surveys and understand why is your product being fired from doing this job. And in the report, there are examples from companies like Slack, Pure Chat, and Monday. On to key lessons where we opened up talking about the importance of scalable distribution. And in a lot of ways, scalable distribution actually matters more than having a scalable product. I'm gonna take a lateral jump here and talk about something that's very hot right now, which is NFTs. And we can use Jack Butcher as an example where he has a ton of distribution, a wide top of funnel, he has scalable distribution. And the product in this case, NFTs, these are being sold as one of one digital products. The product is scarce, it's artificially scarce, but it's scarce. And the effect that you get with scalable distribution and scarce products is what I call art economics, where all you need in the group of 100,000 people are five or six whales that will bid for this one of one item. But if demand was constrained, then you have a problem because you don't have the demand. Even if you had what I call product economics, where you're not bidding an item up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you don't have demand, you don't have demand. Your business doesn't have money and it doesn't have oxygen to run. So that's just an example of why scalable distribution matters so much more than scalable products. Something else that's important to touch on is looking at low customer lifetime values that can't be supported by a sales-led model. So depending on how much a customer is worth to this business over the lifetime of that relationship, you may not be able to use a sales-led approach because there's simply not enough quote-unquote meat on the bone. There's not enough revenue there to support a sales team.
And if you're reading the report, it may seem like adopting a product-led growth model simply means making your product freemium or adding a free trial, but we know it's much more than that. It's around leveraging your sales team, support team, even developers to think about how do we acquire customers at scale? How do we convert customers at scale without them needing to talk to customer support or just removing friction in general from the process? And also how do we expand revenue? And in previous reports, we've talked about this idea of revenue expansion, where we can go back to MailerLite in terms of they don't have to acquire new customers to make more money. The more successful that their customers become, i.e. adding subscribers, the more money they end up paying MailerLite. So that's the way that they can get revenue expansion and actually have net negative churn without adding new customers. And it's important to add this other counterpoint to product-led growth models where sales-led models aren't going away. Sales-led models actually make sense in markets where you have high LTVs and you can justify this customized experience that a salesperson will bring uh, to a relationship or to an account. It also tends to make more sense when you have heavy compliance or security concerns or there's a complex sale where there are a lot of stakeholders in the middle and they have competing interests and that may not uh, be easy to necessarily solve in a self-serve way. We could also touch on the fact that the product-led growth model is a spectrum where we take two companies that on the surface, it seems like they're competing, Hotjar and Full Story, which does heat mapping for websites. On one end, Hotjar has very clear pricing. They have a free option where you can get started without talking to anyone. Full Story also has a free option, but they don't have any clear pricing. So you go from free to demo only pricing. It appears that both of these companies have product-led growth models and they do, but if product-led growth is a spectrum, Hotjar has adopted this model much more than Full Story where they're still putting salespeople between the product and their prospective customers. And another thing that we can look at is the correlation between product-led growth models and low customer concentration, meaning that no one customer or small group of customers represents the majority of revenue for a business. Where if one customer leaves, the impact of that lost revenue is felt much more than if you had a thousand or 10,000 or a million customers from adopting and leveraging this product-led model. There's another element of this as well in terms of the relative power that that customer has that represents the majority of your revenue. You feel inclined to listen to them more and let them drive your roadmap, which may not be in the interest of the other customers that represent less of that revenue. We recently talked about micro private equity, and this is actually something that micro private equity firms look out for and they will express upfront in terms of their buying criteria that they don't want businesses with high customer concentration because that essentially represents risk. One customer could leave and immediately change the attractiveness of that investment. On to haters, where the first hater says that we leave money on the table when we don't allow salespeople to go into these organizations, do value-based pricing, and assess a customer's willingness to pay. And the first thing that I would say to that is that these models aren't mutually exclusive. You can take a product-led growth approach and also leverage salespeople within that model. The other thing is around the fact that we don't live in a vacuum. So even though you may want to force a sales-led approach, Product-led growth is simply more efficient, and if it can be applied to a category or a market, it will be applied to that market and all else equal, it will win. So just like value-based pricing, you don't live in the vacuum, alternatives exist, so you don't necessarily control the moves that these other players in this quote-unquote game make. You're constrained by the alternatives and the other people that are vying for that business.
Another hater says that my product is too complex for this sales-led model. And again, if that's true, you may be fine. And that may be a case where we talked about in that sales-led approaches still make sense in a lot of cases and it's not going away. But if that's not true and someone else can make a product that does that job in a self-serve way, you'll find out. So it's a matter of you either disrupt yourself or you get disrupted. You can't force a sales-led approach on the market. And the last hater says that product-led growth isn't new. And a lot of things that we talk about aren't new. No code isn't new. Charter cities aren't new. Remote work isn't new. But we're at this point where code is being commoditized, customer acquisition costs are going up, and companies are competing more and more on distribution, which is why these scalable distribution strategies matter, building a product that can sell itself, building a product that can be adopted without putting a person in the middle of that transaction matters more. And these investments in product-led growth actually compound compared to a sales-led growth approach, which it's harder to compound the improvements to that model. I'd like to thank everyone who helped out with this report, including Tyler from Less Annoying CRM, Stuart from Channel as a Service, Jeremy from Spiffy, Ilya from Metadata Solutions, Deep from Rerouting, Ben from PMJ, Natwar from Engineering Brew, U from Invoiceberry, Shawshank from Obdena, Ray from Sustained Ventures, and Yardi from Born Fighter. This wraps it up for Report 70 on Product-Led Growth. Thanks for listening, and I'm looking forward to your thoughts.